0: Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaike, and today I'm speaking to an Italian writer and groundbreaking theoretical physicist who has made significant contributions to our understanding of the physics of space and time. His 2014 book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, has been translated into 41 languages and sold over a million copies. And this month sees the English language release of his first ever book, Anaximander and the Nature of Science, which tells the origin story of scientific thinking. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him today. Carlo Rovelli, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. How did you come across... Anaximander. When was the first time you heard his name? Um,
1: I knew a little bit of Anaximander, just minimally, from uh, high school. In Italy, we have a lot of historical Teaching in high school, and there's a history of philosophy which is uh, almost everybody go through. And uh, usually, history of philosophy starts with a little chapter on uh, uh, the beginning of Greek philosophy Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes. And uh, the textbook says something completely incomprehensible, which that is that uh, something like Thales thought that everything is made by water. And Anaximenes thought that everything is made by air and um, Anaximander thought that everything is made by something called Aperon, which nobody knows what it is. And then we pass to the next philosopher, which is completely incomprehensible, doesn't make any sense. That's what I knew until many years later, I was preparing to teach a class in the history of uh, science at the university. In the meanwhile, I had become faculty at the university. And uh, while studying the history of ancient science in Greece, uh, you know, the university, we, we give classes so we can learn something. When we don't know something, if you don't know something, you decide to teach it. So then you have the opportunity to go around and try to learn something about it. And so studying, I was asking myself, uh, I mean, how did the Greek did their astronomy? Where, where did the idea come from? And I was going back, back, and back. And at some point, uh, I stumbled again on this Aleximander of which I knew so little. and. Uh, I was astonished by the list of the things were attributed to him. And so I became increasingly curious about this guy. And uh, I thought, uh, why is this guy not best known? Because uh, according to what is attributed to him, what he has done, it's major in the history of civilization as a whole, I would say. So I got more and more curious. I read everything I could about him, which is not much, because there's not much scholarly work on Anaximander. And I realized that the people who had looked at him scholarly are all people without a scientific education, historians, philosophers. And so there was discrepancy between the ideas attributed to him and uh, the evaluation of these ideas. And I decided to go more into it. And uh, I started writing notes and notes. It grew, it grew, it grew. And at some point, my friends
0: told me, come on, you should publish this. And that's a book. Is the fact, Carlo, that we know so little about him, or more actually appropriately, that we're taught very little about him, is that down to the lack of source material about him?
1: No, because uh, we know a lot about, I don't know, Jesus, and there isn't much about Jesus. We know a lot about Socrates, and uh, Socrates didn't write anything. Also, we know all about um, Alexander the Great, and he didn't write anything. For all these people, there are sources in antiquity, writers in antiquity, which have written about these people, of course. And uh, there's a lot of people in antiquity who wrote about Anaximander. So Anaximander is all over the ancient uh, texts that uh, that we have. Aristotle talks a lot about Anaximander. In fact, it's the only guy about which Anaximander says, oh, this is really ingenious, which is uh, a rare, if not unique, compliment. <laughs> Aristotle saying about something This is a, a genial idea. So we don't have almost nothing directly by him, but there's a lot of uh, ancient literature that talk about him. And uh, there are people who scholarly have reconstructed what presumably was in his book. He wrote a book with the title, was Perifusis, uh, about nature. I am not an expert. In Greek literature and in history, enough to 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 go through this work because, of course, the sources about him are in part reliable, in part not. as always, so it's a it's an historian job to do the puzzle of uh, trying to reconstruct what is credible and what is not credible, what is reliable, what is not in 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 when the ancient talk about him. So people who studied that give us a sort of list of things that most presumably where in his book. And that, for me, was the starting point. I didn't question this reconstruction because I I don't have the the knowledge, the the competence for that. What I have the knowledge for, and that's what I did, is to start from this reasonable reconstruction of his book and comment about the scientific relevance of that for the history of thinking, and especially for the history of um, scientific thinking, which is What I think most people who wrote about him missed because, as I said, the lack of scientific perspective. The first time my book was published, the title was A First Scientist, which is a little bit of uh, exaggeration in some sense, because many people you can say who is the first scientist, right? It's uh, like, you know, who is the first explorer? I mean, it depends how you count. But it can be said, according to a certain perspective on science, one can say that he's a beginner of what we call in the modern world natural science.
0: Can you tell us, Carlo, a little bit about where he was born, which is in modern-day Turkey, and why, perhaps geographically, that place was interesting in how it helped form his ideas?
1: Yes. uh, So, we are in the 6th century before the Common Era. And uh, this is uh, a century and a half before the classic period of the Greek civilization. Where there are most of the authors we we, we know about Aristotle, Plato, and uh, and the the comediographers and the great Greek literature, all that classic Greek civilization of the fifth century of Athens or the fourth century, it's later. So alexander is a is a century before that. It's the early days of what we call the classic Greek civilization, and is he uh, was born and lived in Miletus. Miletus is a city on the coast of what is Turkey today. A Greek city was colonized by the Greeks a few centuries earlier. And at the time was a rather rich commercial city that was trading basically with everybody in the Mediterranean and around. And colonies in the Black Sea, colonies is what is France today, port of call in Egypt, in Naukratis, and regular trade lines with Mesopotamia. So it was a really central position, Miletus, uh, at the border between the Greek world and the the ancient kingdoms, uh, the Kingdom of Babylonia, the ancient empire. The Assyrian Empire had just collapsed. The fall of Nineveh uh, had been a major event just before the the life of Anaximander. Babylonia was again perhaps the greatest city in the Mediterranean area, greatest city of all was in China, the greatest civilization at the time, like for most of the millennia of civilization was in China. But in the, in the Mediterranean or Middle East, Miletus was in a remarkable situation because it was next to the big empires, big kingdoms, the ancient kingdoms, which from the contemporary perspective, I mean, this is almost three millennia ago, but it's not the beginning of civilization, of course. I mean, the, the, the beginning of civilization is maybe three millennia before that, when the kingdom of Egypt started. So civilization was very ancient already at the time. This is important to keep in mind because there is really a break in the work of Anaximander in the way people think. It's attributed to Anaximander, but at some moment, something remarkable changed from everything we have in the previous text and everything we have after that. So there is a jump in the way humans talk about nature, about the world, about the problems. It happened there in this city, rich, connected, well-doing, but... Unless the rest of the old civilized world, not subjected to a central big power and not subjected to a, a big sort of a priest, uh, religious uh, structure. Miletus, like many other Greek cities, was independent. The a small independent city with a power structure that was evolving. The king was taken down and there was an aristocratic power that then was subverted by a sort of uh, democratic uprising. And then it was going through this process that is common in many other ancient cities at that time. But Miletus has a peculiar position of being in between uh, the ancient kingdoms where the knowledge of the time, mathematics, had been developed, where astronomy had been developed, where the table of the of, of the skies had been developed, and this new unstructured uh, Social and political
0: situation of the coming Greek world. How was his rationality, his naturalistic approach, treated by those who still believed that it was through the whim of the gods that natural phenomena took place? I'm reminded, of course, that centuries later, Galileo was condemned by the Inquisition for his suggestions about how the world worked. How was Anaximander treated? Do we know? You're putting the finger on the, perhaps the central novelty of
1: his thinking, his and his friends' thinking. Namely, the great jump between everything we know, rooted before and, and after, is exactly that it starts in Miletus with him and uh, his master Thales and, and the people around him. This new way of addressing phenomena, natural phenomena, without any reference to the gods. That's a real novelty. So in a sense, it's it's the beginning of a neutralistic approach to explaining nature. And that's one of the reasons for which it's the beginning of science. Maybe it's not the only one, but it's a key reason for this beginning of science. We have no indication that for him, there was any conflict between this and the, the religious way of thinking around him. In fact, we don't have any indication that in his writing or in the Mileto School writing, there was any explicit criticism or religion. That's not the point. The point is that there was a millenary tradition of explaining the world uh, in terms of what the gods do, right? So how the world is born, how the universe is born, what is the wind, what is the rain, uh, why there is an order of things, who started the human race. All these questions
0: uh, were discussed and addressed in text. So no conflict between, as far as we know, between religious beliefs and a more rational outlook in the world?
1: No conflict at the time, but it started very early, subsequently. Because already a century later, we know that the kind of thinking that emerged from Miletus uh, started creating conflicts, and we have good um, traces of these conflicts in Athens a hundred years later. Uh, when Anaxagoras, who was a physicist, a follower of the Miletus school, was uh, exiled because of disrespect of the gods. And of course, there's a famous example, which is uh, Socrates. Socrates was condemned uh, to death for disrespect for the gods, for teaching a new way of inquiry that, according to the people in Athens, was disrespectful of of the gods, was not taking uh, the gods into account. And we have a beautiful... Dramatization of this in one of the comedies by Aristophanes, in which Socrates is a character who is in a dialogue with one of the the other characters and says things which in fact are ideas by Anaximander. When Socrates says that uh, the origin of the the rain, the thunder, the the, the lightnings, uh, it's the wind, uh, the, um, uh, the clouds, the title of Aristophanes' plays is the clouds. And uh, in the play, it plays funny because uh, this other character says, Oh, come on, do you really believe this? Uh, you, you really are saying that the, the thunder is not Zeus, it's not the gods, it's, it's, it's just the wind. You're a very courageous person who's going like that against the gods. And the play closes with um, everybody getting furious against Socrates, the character, and beating him violently, saying, Oh, you are disrespectful of the gods. And the, the play is playful. It's a comedy, but Socrates was indeed condemned to death 20 years later, exactly on these charges. So definitely there was already a conflict at the time between uh, the naturalistic thinking and the religious thinking. And again, as it happened with Galileo, it happened over and over again. And not because um, naturalistic thinking directly attacks religion, but because religious people feel threatened by an
0: attempt to understand the world without making any reference to the, to the divinity. Carlo, you summarise Anaximander's work on nature, and you make eleven points. Yep. Looking at point four specifically, the Earth is a body of finite dimensions floating in space. Was that a, a radical exposition from Anaximander? That's a most spectacularly
1: idea, he had, and uh, this is what really got me when I arrived at that point, and I read that he understood that. I stopped and I said, wait a minute, there is really a person, we know his name, who understood that. And then I started searching in the history of science everywhere else in the world, whether anybody else has understood that or whether it was rediscovered in other places. And it hasn't. It's a singularity in the history of humankind. Everywhere, every civilization always has been thinking that the sky is only above our head. And below the feet, there is earth or more earth, or the earth has to lie on something otherwise it would fall. So maybe it's earth forever, or maybe it's just close. You know, we, we live in inside of a closed box and there's nothing outside. Or maybe the, the earth is um, lying on some big columns, like the Bible say, or some big, big turtle sitting of an elephant or whatever other mythological explanation it is. But the picture of the world, the the cosmological view of the world, has always been for every civilization around the planet, whether the Maya, the Africans, the Indians, the Chinese, the ancient Babylonians, the Egyptian, everybody, has been that the world is oriented. There's an up with the sky and there's a down to the Earth. And here's a guy whose name we know who says, no, 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 that's a partial view. The real story is more complicated or is different. And the real story is that the earth is just a big stone that floats and the sky is all around it. So the sky continues below our feet. And uh, this is really a cosmological evolution. It's like Copernicus because it changes completely the picture of reality. And a number of spectacular things, first of all, it's right. We know it's right. Okay, we have pictures of the Earth from the from the Moon, right? In which, yes, the Earth is a is a big stone, uh, and the sky is all around it. So it's completely right. And nobody got to it unless this man. And to get there, it requires a fundamental rethinking. It re- requires changing your view of how the world is. And so, what's great about this passage is that not only is a cosmological revolution, but it's the first one. So it. It's teaching to humanity, to humankind, that, look, you can rethink reality and get it better. It's really learning that we can uh, change something we have been thinking for 50 generations. Oh, that was wrong, and start again, and wow, that works better. And why it was so hard, because it, in a sense, is uh, if you think about it now, in a sense, it's it's pretty obvious isn't it? I mean we see the sun the moon the stars setting in the west and then we see reappe- everything reappearing in the east. And you might ask how do they go around? I mean if, if there's earth all together how does the sun go from from west to east? Is there a tunnel? Is there I mean is there is there are there many sun plural one every day that and then we have a big pile that is piling up. I mean what what is the story? And it's not just the sun because every star seems to be the same going around. So it seems pretty natural Looking at the sky, you just spend some summer day looking at the sky and you see the full sky rotating slowly during the night. It's pretty natural to think, okay, so it's rotating around us. So below the Earth, there should be an empty, right? When you see men walking behind a building and reappearing on the other side, you don't think that there are two men. You think it's the same one and behind the building there is open space. So the same, there should be open space below the Earth. So it seems so easy. But if it is so easy, why nobody else got that? Why it took centuries and centuries of civilization to digest that? And the answer is that it's actually difficult because uh, it immediately, as, as soon as you get this idea that there could be nothing below the Earth, uh, instinctive, you say, well, that's impossible because the Earth would fall. If a heavy thing is not uh, lying on something, it falls out. So why the Earth doesn't fall? So the, the stroke of genius on Aximander, it's having been able to address this question in the most scientific way that one can imagine, namely by questioning the question, why the Earth is not falling? Answer, why the Earth should fall. Do we have evidence for which the Earth should fall? Why do we think the Earth should fall? Well, because we are extrapolating the fact with these stones, pens, things falling down, but it's illegitimate extrapolation to go from that to the full Earth. It might be that things fall toward the Earth, but the Earth is not falling towards something else. And that's exactly what Anaximander got. Namely, falling, it's relatively to where you are on the Earth, which means that up and down is relatively to where you are, which means that high and low, up and down, changed meaning before Anaximander and after Anaximander. Before, it was a universal thing, universal up and universal down, which is how we're born, right? We're born with, you know, up and down are just... Not relative, it's the same for me and for you. But then we learn and we say, no, no, wait a minute. In Sydney, they up and down are different than in London. They point to different direction. Up in Sydney is a different direction to up in London. And now we would learn that at school. And at the beginning is funny, right? When we are kids, uh, say, well, really? I mean, Australians all live upside down. How can they live with, with the head down and the feet up? And then we get used to the idea and, uh, and it's a great thing to get used to the idea to understand that this is possible. And that's what Annex understood. So he understood that it's possible to redraw conceptually the map of reality. And that's the beginning of science because it's the beginning of scientific evolutions. How do
0: you develop, Carlo, a radical awareness of the vastness of our ignorance in a world that Requires certainty and puts strength in certainty.
1: Well, I think just by you know being intelligent, realizing that certainty is overrated. It's worse than overrated. Certainty is a trap. It's a trap that forbids you for learning more. I think, in my understanding, and I would say in the modern understanding, what we have understood more and more clearly is that certainty is not the objective of science. It's the other way around. Science and uh, uh, the very possibility of knowledge to grow is rooted in uh, giving up certainty as as an ambition and accepting the idea that, first of all, there's so much we don't know, and that's the only possibility of open the door for learning. But even more, accepting the, the idea that the things we think we know can be ameliorated because everything we have learned about the world scientifically have come out from questioning something that seemed certain before and was wrong, right? So the universality of up and down—it's a good example. It seemed completely obvious. It seemed completely natural. It's just why would you question it? And yet, if you question it, you understand much better how the, the cosmos work. And that's exactly the same thing that happened with um, with Newton, with Copernicus, with uh, Galileo, with Maxwell, with Faraday, with Einstein. There's, uh, science is that—it's um, accepting. The fact that our knowledge is limited and being able to to learn more. Newton was perhaps the greatest scientist ever, and uh, we have this letter by him um, he wrote at the end of his life, uh, and I think it's marvelous. Because in the letter he says, uh, I quote by heart, so I'm not sure, but something like, I don't know what the others will think about my work, but the way I think about myself is like a kid who is playing on a, on a beach with the pebbles and finding some nice pebbles, a nice piece of truth, so to say, in front of the ocean of my ignorance. So here's a man who, maybe more than anybody else, extended our knowledge of nature and, uh, you know, wrote the that we every engineering still use to build a bridge or an airplane, who is talking about himself as a kid in front of an ocean of ignorance. And of course, the two things are related because why he could understand so much. Well, because it was smart, because it's true, because it was the right moment, whatever. But also because he was open to the idea that there's so much that we don't know and we have to learn. And I think that this acceptance of uh, uncertainty, it would help us to understand better what science is. Don't fall in the trap of thinking that science is a thing that gives us certainty, because that's wrong and that's misleading and that's linked to all sort of error and realize that science is good because it gives us the most reliable answer. So we have a certain moment, which don't need to be the certain answer.
0: What do you make of the times we're living through now, Carlo, where previously an Aximander would have been facing mythology and religion and certainty associated with that and a certainty that cannot be questioned versus an Aximander curiosity, a rejection of certainties, But now we live in an age where people will try and use science itself, or certainly scientific language, to provide certainties on the internet. And that will spread. I mean, we only have to look at climate change deniers, for instance, or anti-vaxxers as an example of that.
1: I think that the, the confusion about what is known and what is not known has always been in civilization. I don't I don't think there was a century or a decade in the past uh, without the equivalent of people who deny scientific knowledge of one kind or the other. I mean, there, there's a lot of people who claim that the earth is flat. They have great theories about the flat earth, and there have always been people like that. Perhaps now I'm more visible because it's more fashionable, because there's the internet, because it's easier to see these kind of things. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's as special of that moment. And uh, things like the ecological crisis in which we are immersed, uh, I think they're really dominated by economical interest and not by lack of understanding. I'm perfectly aware that, you know, in the American Congress, the majority of of the congressmen and, and the people in the Senate don't believe in climate change. But I don't believe it's because they're stupid or non-educated, it's just because they have people and money pressure for doing that. So the, the issue is really economical, political rather than simple understanding of science. But still, nevertheless, I think that uh, it's a difficult and subtle balance to understand that uh, reliable does not mean certain, especially when there are these difficult issues which are political, have various sides, and that a complicated uh, conversation in, the, in societies. But if we got out of this certain thing, and talking uh, token term of reliability would be much, much easier. It's not a complicated thing, right? If I'm in London, I'm not from London and ask for indications how to go to Trafalgar Square. Somebody tells me, you, you go that way, that way, that way. That's a reliable indication. And I can look at my iPhone and get even more reliable indication. Am I ever sure 100%? Of course, no. I mean, somebody could have cheated me. Somebody, look, I'm Italian and give me a wrong indication because he doesn't like Italians. My iPhone could be broken. And, uh, uh, so are we ever 100% sure of something? No, we're not. Is that a problem? No, not really much. I mean I'm gonna get to Trafalgar Square, but I'm open to the possibility. I always have on my guard to the possibility that information I have are wrong. That's fine. It does not mean that the information is not reliable, and this does not mean that I have to I'm capable of distinguishing more reliable information from less reliable information. If a four-year-old kid tells me, oh yeah, Trafalgar Square is that way, maybe I, know, maybe I don't trust him because he's four years old and he's just not understanding my... or or whatever. We should be able to separate certain reliability and then we would get out of traps, for instance, like you know, the anti-climate uh, deniers who say, oh, are you really certain that uh, the Earth is becoming warmer because of humans and if you do that, it will be there... The answer should be no. We're not certain 100% of that, uh, but we're 99.9% reliably convinced that this is the case. And if we don't do anything, then it's you no. Know, it's like, you know, somebody's telling you, your fire is burning. And you say, are you really 100% sure that your house is burning? And that's stupid. I mean, go and take care of your house. <laughs> not quite, Don't look for certainty. When there's danger, you react. So I think it would be bring to a better understanding of science and a better a more reasonable
0: way of going through life to get out of the certainty trap. Is it applicable to other academic pursuits, this idea that we are all Newton on the beach with pebbles looking out over the vastness of the sea? Or is it something that is really applicable to science and the study of science only? Could a historian think exactly the same way?
1: Yes, I think they could, definitely could, and
0: I think they do. In fact, they do better than scientists. I
1: think historians are deeply aware of the difficulty of having history formulated in terms of a sort of an objective, certain, secure point of view. And history is a particularly delicate case because, of course, there are many different ways of telling this story of the past. It is deeply intertwined with political interest and cultural perspective and so on and so forth. Anthropologists know that even even better. And people who study literature or or study philosophy, they're even more aware that uh, we are immersed in an evolving culture and we're immersed in a in a complicated dialogue and conversation between different cultures, different perspectives. And the richness is that. The diversity of perspectives is not not a minus, it's a plus in our knowledge. And one thing that I try to do in the book is to articulate, as much as I can, a, a perspective in which the fact that we know that we make mistake. we know that we may be wrong, we know that our knowledge is uh, within a certain perspective, within a certain culture, so it's limited, it's partial. We always kid on the beach playing with some pebbles in front of everything we know. Th- that doesn't mean at all that all perspective of the same, that we don't know anything, that any possible idea is equal in fact, it's completely the opposite. It's p- precisely because we realize that we may be wrong, which means that we may talk with others and learn. We may study science, nature, and learn. We may have a dialogue with uh, different culture and, and absorb something. And somebody is going to be convinced. Somebody else. So I think it's, it's completely wrong to read the lack of certainty or to read the the relativity of all perspectives uh, as a sign that we cannot choose. We have no ground for truth. We have no ground for saying this is more reliable than this, this else because we do have moral values. We do have uh, scientific knowledge. We do have uh, aesthetic values and we negotiate that over and over and over. But that's good. That's what we are without for this having to find a firm ground on, on which something totally solid can lie. So our knowledge can float in the earth like the earth's neximander so, like float in the, in, in the nothing.
0: How frustrated are you then? By those who will try to sell people simplistic certainties. And this can become very, very damaging indeed when you look at prime ministers or presidents doing this, as you see across Europe and indeed across the world in various places like Brazil with Bolsonaro or Hungary with Viktor Orban.
1: Well, you're pushing me toward delicate uh, political ground, which is hard to address, but let me uh, let say in Italy, let me follow you. I am very frustrated. I'm very frustrated uh, because I think that this is dangerous and uh, risk to take us globally toward, uh, toward catastrophes even, that it has happened over and over in the past. But I'm not frustrated uh, because the political parties that consider our enemies do that. I'm frustrated because my own governments and the political parties that co- I consider my own are doing the same thing. That's what I find uh, very frustrating. We are immersed now in a war propaganda which is dramatically simplistic and uh, flattening reality into a narrative which is one-sided And I think this nourish a set of decisions that might be a disaster for humankind, and the impossibility of question, the difficulty of questioning there that narrative, the difficulty of having a a serious, serene conversation because we fall in a group mentality in which one side is right, one side is wrong, and uh, even trying to address the question is to be called an enemy. That's is nourishing, in my opinion, a very dangerous situation, which is a typical situation that in the past has taken humankind to a catastrophe. So I'm not so much worried about uh, Bolsonaro, who is not in power anymore, who is Lula, or Hungary, or I'm um, more worried about what's happening in, in London or in Washington.
0: Interesting. Um, let's move on to your objects that you bought for us today because one of the things we do here on the penguin podcast is ask our brilliant authors to bring with them some objects that mean something to them and um, i'll start with a typewriter Tell me about this Olivetti <laughs> Lettera
1: 22. <laughs> yes, Olivetti Lettera 22. It's uh, one of the old typewriters. It's a small one. Olivetti is an um, Italian uh, company that did typewriter. In fact, it's one of the first computers companies in the world. It was a moment, I believe it now, but it was a moment in which uh, Olivetti was at uh, uh, the forefront of the development of computers. But that's before the computers. That's when uh, you would write with typewriters. Nobody remembers, I guess. The, the new generation don't even know what's a typewriter. I, uh, I never thought I would become a writer. I grew up as a scientist. I studied as a scientist, and I started writing. I became a writer after 50, by chance, without really realizing it. Even in my book, Anaximander, I just, my notes for my course were growing, growing, growing. At the point, some point, people tell, told me why well, you should publish it. So becoming a writer was never a decision, but I've been reading since ever, and even more, I've been writing since ever. I'm one of these people, many people like that, who since very young age, spent a lot of time with a notebook and a pencil or a pen and just dropping things on the on the notebook. My thought, my consideration, I was a very unrestful and uh, some periods even a happy adolescent or even kid in which with strong emotions, so I needed to open a notebook and write them down, with passion, with confusion, with putting everything there. I was writing and writing and writing and writing, handwriting. And then at some point I decided, wait a minute, I'm handwriting, why, why don't I try to put something in order? And this came before because um, as a young adolescent, my first love, dramatic love, remember I'm Italian, so I'm particularly culturally <laughs> To, to, you know, drama in, in love and, you know, I don't know, some girlfriend who was not liking me anymore, and that was uh, the end of the world for me. So I wrote desperate poetry in the, in the style of Lord Byron or something like that. And then at some point I decided to take these handwritten poems and type them on some white, nice piece of papers and produce a collection of little poems which I gave as a gift to this girl, who probably laughed at the time, but six years later she tells me she still has this uh, poems I gave her. So that was my first typed thing. And then I somehow, this little typewriter was a um, portable, small one. It came with me when I moved to Bologna as a student, it was with me, and it followed me. When I moved to Rome, it, it was with me. It has been with me all the way until computers arrived, and then with computers uh, I mean, somehow there's a different way of writing. And uh, for many of my generation, a typewriter is quintessential writing. Is uh, So I never thought of being a writer, but I have been a writer since ever. And I think if later on uh, I could write books and people liked my books, it's a lot because of my writing since, uh, since my young age. That's why I'm grateful to this lit- letter 22. Um,
0: you mentioned Bologna there. Your next object is something that you carried from Bologna to Verona in 1977, to start radio broadcasting. Tell us about this second object, Carlo. Uh,
1: yes, I love radio, and I was involved in radio since young age, uh, but it was political radio at the time. This is the 70s, so it was the moment of you know, so political uprising, especially young people movement. Europe had a, the, the 60s, and the, but it continued in the 70s. I was politically engaged in the left, and um, politically, in the large sense, culturally, in the late 70s, the idea that the young people would make a revolution, change the world and create a better world, more egalitarian, more peaceful, less weapons, no borders, stronger than that, no family, no ties, no religion. John Lennon, imagine, that was a <laughs> ideology was strong. And uh, in Bologna, which is a university city, is perhaps the most characteristic university city in Italy, there was a large people, a tribe of of students. And and there was a radio called Radio Alice, who played, now remain as the mythical radio of the time, who was the, the voice of this movement. And I worked with this radio. And at some point, I decided to start a radio with some friends in Verona, my hometown. So I asked the comrades in Bologna if I could use the old uh, transmitter of Radio Alice, the Bologna radio, and which was not used anymore because Radio could had uh, upgraded its uh, technology. And they still had in a big uh, wooden box the transmitter, which was not used. Uh, So I said, can I use it? Of course, you can use it. You can take to Verona. So I put it on my little car, my little Fiat, very small at the time. And I drove to Verona with that. But this was the time the police wouldn't allow you to do these kind of things. Uh, It was not illegal, but it was so politically charged that uh, police was looking after this thing. So as soon as I arrived in Verona, I don't know exactly how, probably because of my obvious naivety as, as a young kid. Police relay saw me with the car and the radio. Basically they arrested the radio because they arrested me and the and the car. They took me to the police station, but essentially what they did is to kidnap my transmitter. <laughs> and so the radio I did start, but would not with the transmitter that I brought from uh, from Bologna. It started a few weeks later with another transmitter that we could we could fight.
0: Next up, a physics textbook. Is your next object, but one that apparently some mice found quite tasty. <laughs> I still have this book. It's
1: a book on um, general relativity by Stephen Weinberg. Stephen Weinberg is a, it's a, it's a Nobel Prize, one of the greatest scientists of the, of the late 20th century. Uh, he's one of the main architect of what we call standard model of particle physics, so fundamental physics. But he wrote a marvelous textbook on general relativity on which I studied. But my way of studying during the university years uh, was very, um, I would say, unconventional in for what is university education today. I almost did not go to classes. Out of maybe 18, 20 courses that were supposed to follow at the university, I maybe followed three or four maximum. For the rest, I was studying by myself at home. So I would go see the teacher and say, what do you want me to study? And the teacher would give me the books and the kind of program that I had to follow. And then I would study by myself. So I took this book and uh, I was spending a lot of time in a commune, in a sort of hippie commune in central Italy on the hills, the mountains. And it was a very run-down house, which we shared with another community of mice. Little mice, I mean, so country mice, a pleasant little things, not disgusting rats, city rats. But still, I mean, they were coming in the house and they were using the holes. So I would try to block the holes in the wall from mice with books. And mice clearly were not happy to be blocked inside holes and uh, would sort of the the books. That book was pretty much damaged by mice uh, who were trying to escape from the hole, blocked with my book. And so I still have this book; it's still being eaten by mice a little bit, but I still
0: use that book because it's a very good book. Next, we have a card from the 20th century physicist John Wheeler. Tell us why this card means so much to you. It does. It does mean a lot because uh, well, there are two sides of this
1: story. One is John Wheeler. John Wheeler is a it's a giant of my discipline. When he was young, he was a strict collaborator of Niels Bohr, who was uh, the father of quantum theory. John Wheeler was instrumental for our understanding of the uh, nuclei of atoms' work. Then John Wheeler moved to the United States as American, and he became the main collaborator of Albert Einstein when Einstein moved to the States. And he became, uh, I would say, the first American who really started working in, on, on general relativity and Einstein's major theory then John Wheeler was a thesis advisor of uh, the greatest physicist of the second half of the century. Uh, Richard Feynman was a student of, of Wheeler. My own field, which is quantum gravity, many of the main ideas in the field come from John Wheeler. So he's a giant, you know, it's like you know, somebody who's a painter and thinks about Picasso, or I don't know, somebody who's a writer thinks about Shakespeare, maybe something like that. And I was little unknown Italian student in the hippie commune, uh, studying on books eaten by mice and trying to write, do my physics. And uh, I had written some papers and I had some ideas and um, and some works were out. And, you know, nobody was paying much attention to what I was doing, of course, like a young scientist. And then one day I received a card by John Wheeler, just out of the blue, I receive a card of John Wheeler, which says, uh, your work is completely amazed, is the most interesting thing I've seen in years. Uh, would you be so nice to come and visit me? You know, uh, this is like, you know, you're right and Shakespeare writes to you and say so you're amazing. <laughs> so I just, wow, wow, is it possible? And so it was an enormous emotion for me. It's a moment in which I realized that the science I was doing was taken seriously somewhere. Maybe not everywhere, but that's okay. But uh, I was not totally out of the track. Somebody who I immensely respected uh, was noticing what I was doing and was saying, this is interesting, I'm, I'm following closely. Which doesn't mean it's right. Might not be right, but still it's... Uh...
0: <laughs> Did you go and meet him, Carlo? John yes, of course.
1: So. Yes, of course. It took some time to organize things at the time. no internet, everything was slowly by through letters and things like that. But yes, I went to see him in Princeton. The meeting was complicated because <laughs> I flew to Princeton, but the airplane was uh, delayed and delayed and delayed. So I was supposed to arrive in the evening and sleep in a bed and breakfast, uh, and then um, go to the Institute of Theoretical Physics in the in the morning. In fact, I had arranged to have my presentation in the afternoon, so I would have, a, you know, be very well rested and everything. But the airplane uh, was delayed, 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 and I ended up arriving in Princeton at uh, four o'clock in the morning. I was totally devastated. Uh, so I, I go to this bed and breakfast and I, I wake up the people and uh, they give me the room and uh, I say, okay, well, I, I'm going to sleep until 2 p.m. in the afternoon just before my presentation, so at least I recover. And I get to sleep and at seven o'clock the phone rings and I say, no, no, that's impossible. It's just, but I pick up the phone and from downstairs they say, Professor Wheeler is here asking if you would have breakfast with him. <laughs> <laughs> I say, oh boy, I've slept three hours. <laughs> but how can I say no? I mean, is there any way I could say no to something like that? It's just so you know, I got an instant, go through a shower, like a like a, like flash, and I come down completely. And here's Professor Wheeler. That's when I finally met him. And he we had breakfast together, he took me around. And it's I mean, I still have a memory of that. I was a kid. And here is my hero. And uh, I sort of survived somehow. I woke up. I don't know how. And he took me around and he was incredibly nice. First thing he says is, Carlo, you know, it's great to receive you here in Princeton. Maybe it was his way. He probably was playing this game with everybody. But he says, you know who else arrived in Princeton and I received him like that? And of course, he's referring to Albert Einstein when <laughs> Einstein moved to Britain yeah. for the first time. And he'd take me inside and he said, well, I stroll like that with Einstein. And he'd take me to the room where the atomic bomb was decided because he was one of the people who, with Teller, convinced Einstein to write the letter to Roosevelt saying Hitler may have the means to to do the atomic bomb. So maybe the Allies should do first. So he told me all this story. He was very immersed in that. He was immersed in all the drama of the physics of the 20th century. So that was my meeting with him. And then I gave the talk in the afternoon, and there were other people in Princeton that were furiously opposed to everything I would say, because it was challenging a lot of the main dominant view in Princeton at the time. That's science.
0: That's the way science is. And so and the rest is the rest of my life. Wow. That's interesting, though, isn't it? If you're saying that that's the way science is... But that's not how science should be, isn't it? I mean, there's challenge, but you were saying that you were challenging the dominant view. But those people who were opposed to you were not open-minded to think that they may be wrong.
1: No, it's of course they were open-minded to think that, that, that they may be wrong. But nevertheless, it's uh, scientific discussion works because uh, people have different ideas. Remember, they invited me and I'm giving a talk in their institution and they're all listening to me, spending one hour listening to me, right? And uh, and, and debating and not just walking away saying this is the are debating and the debate is still going on mm, on various things. So science go through the coexistence of different ideas and uh, it takes some time. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long, sometimes it's very long for sort out who is right and who is wrong. And uh, what is remarkable about science, which is historically most great debate, have converged. For, for for 100 years, Europe debated whether Copernicus or Ptolemy was right. And then it was settled. For 50 years, Europe debated whether atoms were real or not real. And then it was settled. For long, there was debate whether Maxwell equation was right or wrong, or where heat was a um, fluid or just a movement of, of atoms. These were great debates, scientific debates. In which it's not you should imagine that in the scientific debates, you know, scientists gently say, Oh yeah, you may be right, I may be wrong, let's debate. I mean there's furious, and then people scream to one another and say, No, you're obviously wrong, you're an idiot, I'm right. But that's fine, because uh, through that, everybody really knows that the answer is not clear
0: until the debate is settled. Your last object, Carlo, is a small antelope horn that you were given as a gift. Who by and where were you? That's much later in life. That's not long ago. In fact, it's
1: a few years ago, before the pandemic. I've always loved to travel. I've always loved to go places. And I always loved to meet people as much as possible different for me. And I traveled with my girlfriend in Tanzania. We rented a car, a Land Rover, and we drove around alone, just me and her, seeing animals, seeing nature, seeing places. And one thing you could do in Tanzania, and you can also do alone, but it's not completely easy, but it's not too hard either, is go look for people who are still living as hunter-gatherers. So, in a lifestyle, which is sort of before the Neolithic, before the establishment of uh, agriculture and uh, and settling. So, there's a nomads that live in small groups. So, there are not many people around the world who still have this lifestyle, but there are a few, and, and it's not too hard to... I mean, we got around, we found some some guy in some village that was sufficiently in touch with these people to take us there. And uh, we drove early, early in the morning. We find this group of maybe 10, 20 men and women who are living in small huts, which are movable, go around and uh, go hunting during the day and spent a day with these people. And uh, it was a marvelous experience for me because, uh, I don't know, it's like a kid's dream, right, to go hunting in the morning with... uh, Arrow and uh, and and flashes <laughs> with a group of men, and then they were able to cut a little antelope and uh, start a fire and cook it there and place, eat there. And uh, you know, it's it's hard to separate what you really see and experience like that from your romantic expectations <laughs> about that and your own fantasizing about that. But nevertheless, for me, it was a wonderful. Wonderful experience. Then we were around the fire and uh, smoking some kind of local marijuana like thing, that uh, pipe going around. Um, those was magic, it was wonderful. And I became, I mean, I, we, we didn't have a language in common, of course. So this guy we found in a nearby village was sort of translating, but was not very easy the translation also because he didn't speak great English either. But nevertheless, I sort of befriended one of these. This man, the local technology they had was basically nothing. I mean, arrows, and they had some broken T-shirt found somewhere, and they had the some knife, but not even some very old broken knife that wouldn't cut. And I had a very good, you know, the French Opinel, the knife. So I gave him as a gift uh, to this man. And later on, when when he, we were cooking the the antelope, he cut one of the horn of the antelope. And uh, cleaned it up and gave it to me as a gift um, in exchange of the knife that I had given him a few hours before. And so I kept this Antilope horn with me as a memory of this strange uh, meeting in the 21st century between me, you know, a sort of civilized man that takes airplanes, uses computers and goes around the world, and a man who has lived in a pre-Neolithic. Lifestyle and our very nice communication we had was uh, was very nice to It was a lot of exchanges between between us and uh, and one can fantasize a lot about uh, what that means. And I had a lot of thinking and feelings about civilization, the way it looked to me. And I'm perfectly aware how much my projection is all over that. Is that uh, in spite of everything, his life was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. There was something, something like. A boy or a kid feeling in me that was saying, "Isn't that what we are supposed to do? Isn't that the best way of living? You have a group of friends, you wake up, you have the fire, you go out in nature, you demand the women, and then you bring the food, and the women have gone gathering, and they bring the food, and the... what what do we need more than that? Maybe we need much more than that. My ancestor chose a different route than his ancestors, and they did civilization and cities, knowledge, science, bombs cars, computers. uh, But in an encounter like that, it's easy to fall into a romantic thing and say, well, who
0: did the right choice? I'm not sure. Carlo, thank you so much. Um, As always, just an amazing conversation. Thank you very much, Nihal. That was very nice.
1: I appreciate it.
0: And thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Carlo's work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and let's catch up next time.